12 Things You Never Knew About Catholicism. This is Dive Deep. From the Diocese of Springfield in Illinois, this is Dive Deep, where we dive deep into our Catholic faith. I am Andrew Hansen, alongside Amber Servany and Father Chris House. Been a little while since we've seen Father House. Good to see you. Good to see you. We've been knocking out some interview podcasts, so we're diving back deep in with Father House to give us uh, a little rundown, some historical factoids, you might say. 12 things you never do about Catholicism. And this all kind of happened when Father House was in my office and he was just like, hey, did you you know about this? And I'm like, no, I did not. Hey, did you know about this? I I mean, you're like a history buff. I was a history major in college. Really? Yeah. Just, just generic history? Yeah, generally non, non-American. non Okay, I know you eat this stuff up because you're always watching movies and reading books, so uh, we're going to get right into it. Uh, Groundhog Day, Cappuccino, Lake Cardinals, the Magi, Popes, more than four Gospels, all sorts of uh, interesting things Father House is going to discuss with us. So we'll start. I mentioned Groundhog Day right out of the beginning. So, uh, so Father House, number one, Groundhog Day and Catholicism go together somehow. I never knew this one. It comes from the, so February 2nd is Groundhog Day in the secular world, but long before we were worried about this uh, prognosticating rodent <laughs> in the Northeast, the church was celebrating Candlemas. So on February 2nd, we celebrate the 40th day since Christmas and remembering that Christ, who is the true light, came into the temple on that day when he was brought in by Mary and Joseph. But with Candlemas, there has always been a tradition about, depending on the weather, depending on whether there will be an early spring or a delayed winter. So there are different rhymes that go with it. And I have one of them here. If Candlemas Day be fair and bright, winter will have another flight. If on Candlemas Day it be shower and rain, winter is gone and will not come again. So this whole notion of this overgrown rat seeing its shadow, I mean, really <laughs> kind of comes along much later because this tradition of Candlemas in the church goes way back to that. And some claim that they both come from, uh, I believe it's an Irish pagan tradition or that, but that I'm not sure about. But the Candlemas thing, yeah. So for every second, I mean. I thought that was, so, when you yeah. said that to me in my office, I'm like, what, seriously? And it's and it's another reminder to me how much Catholicism is ingrained in our culture and people don't even realize it. Right. I didn't know about Groundhog's Day, obviously Valentine's Day, Halloween, uh, there's so many things that have you know become so secularized, and it's like nope, they all have their roots to Catholicism. But Groundhog Day, interesting. Of course, anytime I, th- I think of Groundhog Day, I think of Bill Murray and Groundhog Day. Never seen it. That's, oh, no, I know. I've never seen one it. One movie that I have seen that you haven't. <laughs> well, that's that, that's not crazy. All right, what's next? All right, number two, the university system was built by the Catholic Church. We kind of take credit for that. Um, you know, coming and out of the, uh, people say the dark ages, but a lot of historians say really they weren't that dark because there was a lot of learning that was still going on within monasteries and monks for preserving knowledge. But the university system kind of as we know it uh, begins to take shape in the high middle ages. And a lot of that comes about because of the church. So you have, I think it's about the end of the 13th century, you have the creation of the universities of Paris and Bologna, Oxford and Cambridge. And um, actually, it's the latter half of the 12th century, actually. So they kind of come into existence. But in the in the high Middle Ages, for universities to get a charter, they had to come from generally from a certain authority. And generally, that was from the church, from the pope. So I've got it written down here. So 
81 universities had been established by the time of the Reformation. So you're looking at the early to mid 16th century at that point. So of these, 33 of the 81 had a papal charter, 15 had a royal or an imperial charter, 20 had both, and 13 had none. So very much the university system as we know it today, its foundation was in the church. Because to be honest, we talk, I mean, learning was preserved in Europe by the monasteries, by the church. And many of these orders built these great universities. So it's either, uh, you mentioned like Cambridge, so it's either a, a royal backing, i.e. the king and queen or the well, church. I, uh, Cambridge and Oxford, though, were, uh, well, they were started actually. They, they, kept, they kind of were hybrids. But they started actually as cathedral schools, and then they developed in the university. So I think it's interesting because this one and, and actually the next one too that I think the Catholic Church gets a bad rap that we somehow are not connected well to higher education or to science. Like we somehow are the, separated. we're the enemy of it. Yeah, but exactly. actually, I mean, it's yes, yeah, science, uh, art, history, culture. I mean. The church has preserved those things. She has been the patron of those things. Well, heck, if you go to Rome, everything in, in the Vatican and the Vatican museums and the Vatican library, I mean, geez, it's utter, utterly incredible. Well, and all around Rome preserved. itself, though, even, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that's, yeah, it's this notion that the church is anti all this. Like, well, no, actually a lot. And the church is the one who's preserved it. And even, you know, in, in history, you talk about the art in that. The reason why the church owns all this is so that everybody has access to it. That's why the church does not give up these great works of art. I think it was Pope Francis himself who talked about it. So the poor have access to these things. Yeah. Cause there are people who have said like, why doesn't this, why doesn't the church sell all this stuff and give money to the poor? And I think that may have been what, what Pope Francis said. Right. That was like, well, no, it's actually open to everyone. Cause yeah, you can walk into St. Peter's Basilica and check out the Pieta and every, all the other great works of art there. Okay. And now Amber, you mentioned it right out of the gate there of, of science. Our third uh, thing you didn't know about Catholicism. The father of the big bang theory is a Catholic Yes, Father George Lemaitre. He died in 1966 at the age of uh, 71. He actually had been made a Monsignor in 1960, so it's actually Monsignor Lemaitre. When are you going to be made a Monsignor? Uh, probably never. So I'm <laughs> I'm still 20 years too young. So oh, there's an age you on there. Be 65. Oh, yeah. there's another thing oh, you didn't yeah. know. There's like 13 yeah. things you didn't know <laughs> that, about Catholicism. That was changed by there's Pope Francis. Yeah. Let's be real. <laughs> so um, let's see here. So he's from Belgium, and I, I knew about, I don't know much about him. I had to look a lot of it up, but a Belgian, he's a Catholic priest, mathematician, astronomer, and he was a professor of physics at the Catholic University of Leuven, or we say Louvain, I guess, but Leuven. Um, he was the first to theorize that the recession of nearby galaxies could be explained by an expanding universe. I'm reading this because I could not tell you this, <laughs> which was observationally confirmed soon afterwards by Edwin Hubble. So oh, we know the name yeah. Hubble. Um, he first derived Hubble's law, now called the Hubble-Lemaitre law, uh, and published the first estimation of the Hubble constant in 1927, two years before Hubble did. Uh, Lemaitre also proposed the Big Bang theory of the origin of the universe, calling it the hypothesis of the primeval atom, and later calling it the beginning of the world. I know he did meet Einstein on four different occasions. There's some dispute about... Einstein appreciated his work. Um, some say that Einstein said it was brilliant. Some say he only said certain parts of it. But um, yeah, so Monsignor Lemaitre, the father of the Big Bang Theory. Now, we, we did a podcast once with Father Rankin on the Big Bang Theory. I want to ask you really quick, um, where, where is the, you know, the Catholic Church? I feel like the Catholic Church used to say the Big Bang Theory was 
or we, we taught against the Big Bang theory, or there, there's some discrepancy on the Big Bang theory, even though the, the father well, I mean, founded you go, it. You go back, I mean, it, it, it evolved with our notion of the scriptures. So we do not read the scriptures literally. We read them as a book of religious truth. So what is the ultimate truth of creation? That God is the author of creation. Whether that began with the Big Bang, I mean, there had to be a spark that ignited True. the bang. So whether it's the Big Bang, whether it's evolution, whether it's creation as we hear in Genesis, God is the author of all life. God is the author and the master of creation. So that's the truth behind it all. What's interesting is I was reading about Lemaitre is that he actually, while he didn't, he of course said that religion and science were not opposed, he actually did not like to mingle the two. He tried to keep them very separate. In fact, he, uh, Pope Pius XII had commented on his work and various things. I guess he got edgy about it. He kind of, he didn't want the Pope talking about his work. He just kind of wanted the Pope to hmm. stick to other affairs. So, yeah. <laughs> All right. What's next? Number four. Okay. I like this one. Uh, effervescence. Uh, what makes the champagne bubbly was discovered actually by monks. Well, and that's actually, um, not true. That's a popular legend, but oh. but, we'll, but, we'll, no, but, no, but there's something connected to it, though. It's okay. It's okay. So effervescence comes from the Latin word fevere, which means to boil. So there's a it's a common belief that that Dom Perignon, of course, whom the champagne is named after, who was a monk, who was a monk who lived. Well, there's your fact right there. Well, though. Yeah. I had no idea yeah. that was <laughs> that was that's what we should have said. I had no idea that was named after a monk. But Dom Perignon was at the Abbey of Saint Van in France, and he became kind of he was in charge of the Abbey's wine production, <laughs> and so the tradition always was that he discovered effervescence, although. Well, probably tell you that most people argue it was discovered before that. He actually thought it was horrible. He did not want bubbles in his wine and all that. So, but um, what Dom Perignon did though, was he really has set the standard for wine production that is still used today in France and around the world. He was very selective in how, what grapes were used. He was selective in how they're blended. Um, he refined the red wines that come out of the Champagne region uh, so much that uh, Louis XIV, you know, the, the Sun King, declared his red wine to be the finest in the world. So he won the praise of uh, Louis who built Versailles. So Louis liked good things and he thought that Dom Perignon's wine was uh, right up there. So, uh, so yeah. So while he thought effervescence actually was a corruption of the substance, didn't want anything to do with it, he actually – his work though continues today with uh, – how good red wine is produced. I so see red wine. You're you you love your some wine. What's I love what red what's wine? Red wine. Yeah. You're you're a red wine guy. I'm more. I'll drink. I well, prosecco, which is actually the Italian version of champagne. champagne. It's it's a lot cheaper because it comes from Italy. So <laughs> I don't like things too dry. It's got. I thought Italy was like the number one. You're saying is France the number one wine place? Or if you talk to the French. No. If you talk to the Italian. I mean, you can get wine everywhere anymore. Germany, Argentina, uh, France. What's what's the best place? Amber, um, I do like Italian wine because I just think like there, there's like a like a house wine like I call it that I just think is good. Like it's just generally without I don't know. <laughs> well, from France because I mean you actually have the region of Champagne and you have Bordeaux. So, yeah, which, that's above my price range. Right? There's five. <laughs> no, no, sorry, there's five or six Bordeaux grapes. I, mean, I was out in a, at a winery in California a year ago. And I'm, I don't have the palate for wine. So they get, and they finally, they, they bring the last one. And I'm like, oh, this is very, very good. <laughs> of course, it's like the $500 bottle. 
Oh, so could you could you even really taste the difference? Oh, that way you could, but oh, you it's could. made okay. from all. It's, yeah, it's a blend of all the Bordeaux grapes. So it's like so. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. Well, I guess I have a. Uh, <laughs> I could taste things that I can't afford. So. <laughs> All right. Well, well, speaking of of monks, the next one on our list, uh, cappuccino. Cappuccino was named after monks. Actually, no, they're not monks. They're friars. Friars. Wait, wait. We're, our list is way off today, Amber. For, well, I actually, thought, I wrote. I wrote in my notes. It's actually friars. Friars. <laughs> Franciscans yeah. and Dominicans are friars. Yeah. Benedictines are monks. Oh, see, in my layman brain, they're all, they're all the same. <laughs> well, well, for the average, for, yeah, they are. But no, yeah. So the Franciscan friars. So, um. In the 15th century, you have the founding of the Capuchins. So they are a part of the Franciscan family. So in Italian, cappuccio is the Italian word for hood. Cappuccino means little hood. And now I was wrong on this. I always thought that cappuccino was derived because you have the brown and then you have the white in the middle. And as the the friars would always have the tonsure, the locks of hair cut out of their the crown of their head. I always thought it was named for that because it looked like the bald spot. So you end up actually no, it's because of the, the brown was the color okay. of the capuchin habit. So that's why it has the name of cappuccino. So hmm. are you a cappuccino drinker, either of you? No. I mean, not on a daily basis, but like when I went to Italy, my gosh, that is like coffee. Wine is best there and coffee is best there. It's, it's different. Um, what is, yes. you, when, they, yeah. when you go there, is it just like two or three ounces and it's is basically? That, no, that's, that's cafe. That's uh, espresso. Oh, espresso. A okay. cappuccino. But over there, you would, milk. You, you would milk. never drink a cappuccino after the morning. And it, it's, it's, it's gauche to the Italians. Americans drink it all the time, not over there. It's kind of like donuts. You only drink donuts in the morning, right? Well, that was, but that, like you that. know. But <laughs> speaking of that, Father Peter Harmon, who's rector at the NAC from our diocese, told a story about when he was in school over at the NAC. A buddy of theirs used to always get a cappuccino at dinner, and they went to a regular restaurant, and the staff got to know them, so they could joke with them. But he would order a cappuccino in the evening, and the waiter would roll his eyes and ask if he wanted a donut with it, just because <laughs> they just would never. To the Italians, is you do not have cappuccino after the morning. <laughs> All right, the next one. I think this is interesting. It says lay cardinals existed only a hundred years ago. Is yes, that true? Because now we all know that role here. But <laughs> yes, the last one he was named uh, Teodolfo Myrtle, M-E-R-T-E-L. So there's a lot of times there's confusion about what a cardinal is. We think that cardinal is a rank after bishop. So priest, bishop, archbishop, cardinal, pope. But cardinal is not in that line. So a cardinal has two main functions. A cardinal advises the pope, and a cardinal who's under the age of 80 votes in a conclave to elect a pope when the see of Peter is vacant, when the see of Rome is vacant. We've attached now with the reforms of canon law in 1917 beginning there, you had to be a priest or a bishop. So you had to be a major orders to become a cardinal. Now, technically, a person was in minor orders if they were a cardinal because they were given tonsure. So the cutting of the locks out of the head and that's you enter the clerical state. So even a technically a, a lay cardinal was not lay in the strictest sense. They were a minor cleric, but they weren't in major orders. They weren't a deacon, a priest, or a bishop. So that was all changed in 1917. And then um, it was John the 23rd, Pope St. John the 23rd, who decreed that you had to be a if you're going to be a cardinal, you had to be made a bishop also. In recent years, it's become a custom that um, 
some priests are made cardinals because of work they've done, usually a lot of times theologians, and they're over 80 years old. So they're given the title and the honor, but they'll never vote in an election. And they can be dispensed from that requirement. They can ask not to be. So like uh, Cardinal Avery Dulles, a great American Jesuit theologian, he was dispensed. So he dressed like a bishop, looked fully like a cardinal and all this, but he was never actually ordained a bishop. But he How had the cardinalatial dignity. How many cardinals are there? Uh, um, a couple hundred. I think it's – well, you've got – because you have two distinctions, those who, those who are under 80 and those who are over 80. So for voting, the constitution on that – keeps the number supposed to be at 120. It's never exact. Sometimes it's above, sometimes it's below, but it's in proximity of 120. So that's where they they keep it at. So. And, and a pope can really just he he could name more cardinals. Oh, he, he could he can name as many cardinals as he wants. There's John Paul II, uh it was proposed to him that he raise that number to 140. He didn't. Uh Pope Benedict XVI left it at 120 and, and Pope Francis has left it at 120, although there's been talk over the past couple of years and you know, probably from talking from people who don't know that he was going to raise it to 140, but he hasn't done it. So So right, I gotta get so the lay so lay card so uh, let me ask this. So a cardinal today has to be a bishop first. No, a, a cardinal today has to be in major order. So you'd have to be at least be a has to be ordained. Well, it has to yeah, be it's, ordained. It's, I can't just say major orders because diaconate is part of the major order. So diaconate, the pr- uh, presbyterate, or the episcopacy. So you have to be at least a priest. And you're supposed to be ordained priest. a bishop, but you can be dispensed from that. Okay. So at this point, no, there are no, you cannot be a lay cardinal anymore. Correct. But the Pope is the legislator. He could always, he there's always talk of would he, I mean, would the, would the Pope even, would the Pope make a uh, a woman cardinal or women cardinals? And it's an interesting concept to, I mean, some people would probably listen to this and gasping, but it's, the cardinalate is not attached. It, it's attached in modern times and in older times by a very thin thread to orders, but that could be changed. I mean, we changed the minor orders. They were always attached to those who are going to become priests. So the ministries of acolyte and lector. Well, now the Holy Father's opened that up to men and women. So but it's kind of like what you said, if, if the point of the cardinal, the number one role is to simply be an advisor to the right. Pope, you know, one could make the argument, why not a lay? Why not a woman? Now, I'm not, I'm not going to open up that can of worms, right. but it's kind of what, what you're going. It could be the, done. The, the, the true definition of Correct. a cardinal fits in that. that right. Role. It's more of a matter of ecclesiastical discipline, not sacred tradition. Not a revealed truth that comes from the scriptures or that was revealed by the Lord. I thought that was fascinating when you told me that. All right. What's next? Uh, There are actually more than four gospels. Correct. There are four that are accepted. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are our four that were accepted as being completely, completely inspired by the Holy Spirit. So when the canon of the scriptures was closed around the year 400, it was accepted that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those are divinely inspired. Now, besides them, there's over 25 other Gospels floating out there in tradition. Uh, many of them are very old, very ancient. A lot, so we have like a group called the Gnostic Gospels. There's the Judeo-Christian Gospels. So uh, probably among the most famous of the uh, Gnostic Gospels would be the Gospel of Thomas, which there was this movie called Stigmata. 
oh my gosh, probably 20, 25, 25 years ago, probably stigmata. And I remember when that came out, it was like, oh, the church is hiding something. That was all the, the thing. It's like, well, uh, not really. Uh, the church didn't accept the gospel of Thomas because it had a few things in it, such as that if I remember right, that women cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And so the church is like, yeah, we can't accept this as being inspired by the Holy Spirit. So are there good things in the Gospel of Thomas? Yes. Is there religious truth in the Gospel of Thomas? We'd say yes. Same with the other Gospels that are non-canonical, that were not accepted. But there's something, there's parts of it, though, that the church just did not believe were um, were totally uh, inspired. There's uh, the Gospel of James, or what's called the Proto-Evangelion of James, uh, the author of which claims to be the stepbrother of Jesus. Huh. So a lot of, uh, many of our kind of traditions or pious legends that come out about Mary and the childhood of Jesus come from the Proto-Evangelion of James, even though it was not accepted as a canonical book. There's, uh, in fact, I believe that is where the first, really the notion of the perpetual virginity of the Blessed Mother is found. And the church has then held that as a dogmatic reality. You can, I mean, a lot of these, you can find, you can Google them. You well, can Google, I did actually. You can well, Google. that's another thing I never do about Catholicism right there. So the gospel of James. Yeah. It's kind of the. Cause that's one of the theories, you know, where did, you know, when Joseph or Jesus is out doing ministry and the apostles say, your mother and your brothers are here. The Catholics like, what do we do with that? Well, there's always three possible theories that Joseph and Mary had children. Well, the church rejects that because we believe that Mary is perpetually virgin. That's a dogmatic truth. It could be that um, one of the other things is that, uh, you know, the word for uh, brother and cousin are the same in Greek. So it's bad translation. Or two is that it's possible that Joseph was a widower, that he was married before he married Mary, and that he had children by his first wife. And this is the basis that comes out of the Proto-Evangelion of James, is that James was the brother of the Lord, was a stepbrother of the Lord. So the first time I heard that was when we were in the Holy Land. I okay. had no, that was the first time when yeah. they told us that. I was like, oh man, I so, didn't realize. So do you do you encourage Catholics to read these just to kind of maybe uh, get some more context, or, or is it kind of like take it with a grain of salt? I think with all, I've, I've never read all of them. I've looked at a few of them. I've got a book at home that has several of them in it. It's like, I mean, you just got to be careful because I don't want anybody to grab onto something that, oh, this is good, but it's not what we believe or that. So, and then like I said, you can, the Proto-Evangelion of James, you can Google it. It's, it's very short. Um, Wasn't there one story and it was the gospel of Thomas of the child Jesus, like having a bird attack some, somebody. Well, there's one was that he made a bird out of clay and then made it come to life. And the other one about that though was there's some children. I don't know if they got in an argument with the child Jesus or they were being mean and he commanded a flock of birds to come down and kill the, kill the other kids. <laughs> if Hollywood was, was creating the canon of the scriptures, it would make it, but that would, uh, it did not make it the cut because of that. So, so yeah, that one does, is not inspired by the yeah. Holy Spirit. But the church isn't hiding any of this stuff. You can find it all. It's out there. It's just the church said, you know, there's for various reasons, these books, we don't believe we're totally inspired by the spirit. I just, I thought that scene cracks me up like a three-year-old Jesus or a four-year-old Jesus saying birds come down. All right, whatever. All right. Uh, next on our list, the Easter bunny, which we always think is a very secular thing. The Easter bunny 
has Catholic roots. Right. Explain this one. Because, yeah, when you told me that, again, this is another one. I'm like, wait, what? Easter Bunny seems pure secular to me. Over at, at Christ the King, where I'm pastor, in the rectory yard, the courtyard in the back, we have a family of rabbits. They've been there since I moved in a year ago. And um, they seem to be growing because they're, the, they're always around. Rabbits, you see them in the morning, you see them in the afternoon, see them in the evening, you see them at night. So it was always, there used to be a notion that rabbits didn't sleep because they're always present. You see them at any time of the day or night. And so there was a custom, a tradition that, well, if anyone or anything saw the resurrection, it had to be a rabbit because rabbits are always present. Rabbits are always around. So that's where the tradition of the Easter Bunny comes from. So the Easter Bunny, uh, and, and so then that, that symbol of the Easter Bunny and the resurrection. What about finding eggs? Anything to do with that? Or is it that just, I don't just, know. Yeah, no, okay. But it just, it was a bun, a rabbit would have seen the resurrection. And so that. And so that's the how the Easter tradition bunny. of the Easter Bunny came uh-huh. out. And now, see, that's, that, that's right. pretty cool. Yeah, I but, thought it was pagan. That's what I, I always thought there was like a pagan thing. I'm, you know, <laughs> if you look these things up, Almost anything we hold in tradition, you can find someone who's purporting that, well, we took it from paganism. Yeah. Well, there are some things, yes, that came from paganism and that uh, you know, Pope Gregory the Great talked about. You find something that's good, bless it, baptize it, mm-hmm. and use it for the good of the faith. But not everything in the world that's good had pagan origins or it was co-opted by the Christian church. Well, what I love about this list so far is we've now, you know, Groundhog Day, the Easter Bunny, we talk about Valentine's Day, Halloween. How many, again, let's just add another thing to the list that our secular culture doesn't realize you're actually being Catholic. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Amber, what's next? All right. Um, The three Magi were not kings. Um, And actually, we don't even know if there were three. This is going to wreck people's nativity scenes. (laughs) Well, this may have been in the podcast that was a couple years ago on Christmas, wasn't there? Oh, sorry. We interviewed uh, Professor David Pertana from UIS. And he may have talked about this in there. I don't remember. But, um, you know, the Magi, ever since I was a little kid, I've had a fascination with the Magi. There's those mysterious travelers. So what do we know about the Magi? We only know really what Matthew's gospel tells us. So Matthew um, doesn't call them wise men, doesn't call them kings. So the term kings really is kind of derived out of, we talk about the Psalms, you know, the kings from Sheba and Seba will come to adore you. So trying to match up these prophecies. But uh, Matthew says, Magi from the East. So likely, likely they were Zoroastrians, Perhaps Zoroastrian priests. Uh, Zoroastrianism is a monotheistic religion, very uh, comparable or very um, similar to Christianity, very compatible. Um, they believe in the, this divine mystical love at the heart of all things. So, but part of their uh, practice of their faith would have been, you know, the, the astrology. So they very much kept their eyes to the stars. And so something wonderful happened. We don't know really what the star of Bethlehem was. We had this alignment. What do we have a few months ago? The alignment of mm-hmm. uh, Venus and Mars, those three planets. Remember this a few yes. months ago? And I was like, oh, it's the star of Bethlehem, star of Bethlehem. I remember I went, I went outside. I drove out by New Berlin because my Magi fascination, I want to see this. And I remember getting out there. I'm just like, I wouldn't have gotten on a camel and ridden hundreds of miles across the desert over months, most likely, if this is what I saw in the sky, because I couldn't make it out. But anyway, but so, you know, we say three because three gifts, Matthew says, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. 
So that's why I say three uh, kings, because like I said, that Old Testament illusion. But that's kind of where it stops and starts. We don't know. I mean, most likely they didn't arrive until Jesus was probably getting ready to walk. He did it, tell. He did talk about that at that. Oh, he did. Yeah, Because yeah. even in uh, the manger scene in St. Peter's Square, before these hideous ones started coming about the past couple of years or whatever, but they used to have it to where you'd have the the infant Jesus, and then at Epiphany you'd have a toddler sitting in Mary's lap for when the Magi would come. So because it would, and also because was Herod do kill all the boys two years old and under? Because he ascertains the appearance of the star and from the Magi and all these things. So, I mean, there are clues to all this stuff right there in Matthew's gospel. If you actually just kind of sit there and chew on it. I, well, there's another fun fact. I had no idea that we, they changed manger scenes. And yeah, in my in my uh, manger scene image, I always imagine them there maybe two days after Jesus is born. Sometimes they feel like he was. they were there that night. Well, yeah, I said, I mean, the tradition was always, you know, Epiphany was always the 12th day of Christmas. You know, January 6th from December 25th. It's always the custom. Well, to make it from modern day Iran to the to uh, Bethlehem, you'd have to have a very efficient camel. So 12 <laughs> days is not going to work. All right. We've got three more to get to. We've had popes not just from Europe, and this doesn't include Pope Francis. And yeah, in my mind, when I think about this in my recent history brain, I could only think of popes from Europe. So, okay. And 266 popes. So where's the number one country where they've come from? Italy. Italy. What's the second one? Ooh. Uh, I'm going to guess. No, no, because JP2 was the first from Poland. Uh, Wow. (laughs) Can't even think of. uh, France. France. France France is number two. And there's a tie for third among two. Seven from this country and seven from that. Germany? Germany is one. The Spain. other? Spain? Or- S- <laughs> Syria. Oh, no Syria. Back when it was part of the Byzantine Empire. Ah. So, yeah. So, seven popes from I like the little trivia trivia game you just yeah. played with us. So, Am and I are like, duh. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, 217 from Italy, 16 from France, seven from Germany, seven from modern-day Syria, four from Greece, three from... The Holy Land, but actually from what we'd call Israel today, Palestine. Two from Dalmatia, which would actually be in modern-day Croatia. Two from modern-day Turkey. Two from Spain. Two from Portugal. One from England. One from the Netherlands. One from Argentina, our current Holy Father. One from Poland, Pope John Paul II. One from Libya. One from Tunisia. And one from Algeria. Algeria. And these are, I mean, the ones, Algeria, Tunisia, Libya, these are popes from the early days of the church but but still yeah. fascinating oh well, yeah but it really shows again it shows that universality of the church we right. get stuck in our oh it's all italy it's all no, italy but, but the, where was the church at the church started in the holy land and it spread across north africa and the mediterranean basin and up into syria i mean where's paul's preaching paul's preaching up in syria in turkey all those places speculation question do you think we'll ever see an american pope oh i don't know I have no idea. They always say no because they would not align since we're technically the last superpower to yeah. align that with the. I, I remember there was this documentary on Cardinal George from Chicago, and one of the experts in there said if there were to ever have been an American pope, Cardinal George could have been it. Interesting. Mm. 
There was, I mean, there were some commentators who, uh, when Pope Francis was elected, that were, were sure that Cardinal Dolan was going to be elected out of New York. Uh, I thought I read a book that, that he 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 did get a few votes in the conclave, but uh, but after once the second cycle and third cycle went around, it, it waned away. Apparently, that's a normal custom that on the first vote you vote for a buddy or you vote for somebody as an honor, you cast a vote and it's like, apparently you get serious on round two. So, but, uh, yeah. So. Well, there's another thing I didn't know. That's good. That's yeah. funny. All yeah, right. I want to be in this voting process. <laughs> Amber, what is number 11 on our list? Okay. The Catholic church consists of more than just the Roman Catholic church. Okay. Probably we probably need to rephrase that more. We have the Roman Catholic church. But within the Roman Catholic Church, there are 24 autonomous churches. The one that we are most familiar with is the Latin Church, okay? So which is, we make synonymous with Roman Catholicism. But within the one holy Catholic apostolic church, there are 24 autonomous churches. So one in the West, and we say the West, but all throughout the world, the Latin Church, but 23 others that we call the Eastern Catholic Churches, which are very much tied to generally an uh, ancestral and ethnic background. So, for example, like you have the Ukrainian Catholic Church, the Greek Catholic Church, the Russian Catholic Church. So whereas in the Latin Church, it kind of transcends Irish, French, Italian, Spanish, Portuguese. In in Eastern Catholicism, is very much attached to a— to an ethnicity a lot of times. So within the Eastern Church, they have their own canon law. So you have the Code of Canon Law for the Latin Church, and you have the Code of Canon Law for the Eastern Churches. And I had one course on the Eastern Code of Canon Law, and I knew less at the end of the course than I did before because it was so complex. Um, it's fascinating, but it's complex. So you have then, we talk about rights. So there are liturgical families then within the structure. So you have the rights. So you have the Alexandrian rite, the Armenian rite, the Byzantine rite, the East Syriac rite, the Latin liturgical rite, which we're a part of, and the West Syriac rite. So for those of you who are just listening and not watching, if you think this is impressive, I'm just reading this <laughs> off of a list because there's no way I could re- remember this. But So so do they, do they have different beliefs? No, it's very much – what changes a lot is the, uh, the liturgy. So we celebrate the Roman rite of the Mass. They celebrate, in most cases, the Divine Liturgy of St. John Chrysostom. So that's not the only, but that's the main one. So, But it's the same result. Bread and wine become the Eucharist, become the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. And basically where the Eastern churches came from is after the Great Schism, when East split from West, these are those who retain their Eastern heritage, their Eastern ecclesiology, but also retained their allegiance to the Bishop of Rome, as being the appointed successor of St. Peter by Christ. So in the end, it's really just, if you went to Mass, they, could they still call it Mass? The Divine Liturgy. Okay, so if you went there, it would it would look a little different. It would look very different. But it's still readings, gospel, homily, Eucharist. Uh, but might yeah. look a, the flair might look a little different. <laughs> very different, because a lot of times it's it may not be in English. And so like when I was studying canon law in Washington those summers, I would say mass in the morning, and then I would walk down to the shrine of the Holy Family that was Ukrainian Catholic. It was right behind the basilica. 
in Washington, the National Shrine. And I'd go to the Divine Liturgy there. And so it was in the Ukrainian rite. It was in English, though. But it's very, it's, there's a lot of chanting. There's a lot of incense. And a full Divine Liturgy can go upwards, I believe, of like three hours. So, I mean, for Latin Rite Catholics who begin to tap their watch when Father's getting close to an hour for Mass. I mean, in the East, it's closer to three. Mm. And you can come in and out. I mean, usually there's no pews or that. You kind of stand, but you can go out and take a break, get a smoke, and, whatever. And, I mean, it's just kind of as I talked about in school, you're going to get smoked. And so. And, so, and so if you are on vacation or somewhere and you can't find, you can go to Mass there and that fulfills your obligation. Oh, yeah, absolutely. C- completely Catholic. Okay. In our diocese, we, sadly, we do not have a, a really any presence of Eastern Catholics, except we have one Ukrainian Catholic church down by Granite City. Hmm. That's it. So um, there's Maronite Catholics up in um, Peoria Diocese down in St. Louis. So there, Chicago has a has Uc- uh, Ukrainian bishop up there. So a great wealth. Um, and among these, I, sh- I talked about ones who didn't break away, the Maronites will always tell you that they were simply living their lives in the mountains of Lebanon when the church was breaking apart and that they never broke away. So that's the one church. So yeah, so there's basically a counterpart to every Orthodox church. So you have Greek Orthodox, you have Greek Catholic, Ukrainian Orthodox, Ukrainian Catholic. So they mirror each other. So if someone converts from Orthodoxy, they have to cross over into what the mirror church is. So whether it's Russian Catholic, Ukrainian Catholic, uh, Ito-Albanian Catholic. And then in India, we have the Syro-Malabars and the Syro-Malankars because it was believed that St. Thomas carried the gospel. And so very rich tradition in India too. So, yeah. So uh, 24 churches, we're one, we're the biggest, the Latin church, but 23 sister churches. Well, I think what's interesting that I pulled out of there is I know some may say, well, you know, the, the Catholic says, you know, Luther broke off and that sort of the Reformation and all these splinter churches, but you Catholics, you guys have 24 different churches. Uh, you guys are, you know, you're speaking out of both sides of your mouth, but it, it's, it's the, lit, the liturgy is just simply, it's different. It's, the, it's, the mass is still the mass. It's just, they do different. It's 24 things. expressions of tradition that all cling to the same authority. That's the thing. Yes, there may be 24 different expressions, but we all share the same authority. John Paul II used the great image of two lungs, east and west. Mm. The church has to breathe with both her lungs. And sadly, um, most Latin Catholics have no knowledge of the east. And it's unfortunate because there is so much beauty in their liturgy, their traditions, um, and all that. Yeah, I feel like when I read with God— with God in Russia, mm-hmm. that that gave the, let me a little insight into how that all works. I mean, he was you know, from the United States, and then he goes and he becomes Russian. He just he learns the Russian rites or whatever. And um, but that was the first time I feel like I had read and saw all the different rites and how it kind of he kind of gives an insight on how their services go instead. I thought it was interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, last one on our list, Amber. Anyone can baptize. Canon 861, paragraph 2, talks about who the ministers of baptism are. So you've got your normal minister would be a cleric, or it could be a in not so much the United States, in other places they have catechists who sometimes run parish communities. So they'd be catechist, or in an emergency, anyone who does what the church intends. So anyone who pours water 
saying, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, intending to baptize that person as the church intends it, validly baptizes. So Muslim nurses and Catholic hospitals were taught by the Catholic sisters who were also nurses how to baptize babies in the case of an emergency. That was my next question. So you can be a not, you can be an atheist. Absolutely. But you can't baptize yourself. So therefore, if you're dying on the road and atheist guy is there and you have a bottle of water and you want it, you say, please, atheist guy, say these words and pour water over my head. Yeah, if he's willing to do that, yeah, this is what the church, this is what you believe, this is what you want for the church. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's kind of, it is an interesting reality because you would think that faith, but it, but it's not the faith of the minister, it's the faith of the one receiving it, you would, in that case. So, so, yeah, that's so yeah. there, you can make some very, you could make some very strong theological arguments all the way around this, but that simply is the church's tradition. My, uh, I think it's a beautiful thing. I mean, you mentioned the Indian nurses in a Catholic hospital. I think that that's beautiful that, that they, that they would do that. Um, my uncle baptized my uh, great grandfather on his deathbed before I was born, but yeah. I think it shows the significance really of baptism in all honesty. I mean, like, um, there's many churches who are just like, you have to say, um, I believe I right now accept Jesus into my heart and that's it. We actually don't do that. We don't believe that. It's like we have this really great significance of baptism. Which I think well, and, and speaking of that, so I have four kids and every time I went to the hospital, I always made sure I had a bottle of water just in case when they were born, if something was wrong, yeah, that's good. I, I could baptize them on the and spot. It, and it, that's when it has to be pure water. You have to have pure water for baptism. It can't be what's, milk. It can't be oh, soda. Gotcha. I was like, what's it that can't mean? Be beer. It has to be pure water. Oh, so really quick there though. So I'm going to get into some technicalities. So let's say in that moment, mm-hmm. I forgot my bottle of water and my child is born and something's wrong. And I, I, I want to baptize them. I, I didn't have water on hand. Could you make the argument that it's baptism by desire? Well, we always have talked about that three ways. That, so baptism by water. Baptism by blood, so those who were martyred before they actually received baptism, and the baptism of desire, the desire of the parents in that. So that's now, you know, we cannot to say this definitively necessarily, but we trust in God's mercy. We trust that you know God knows the desire, of the heart of these parents, these, and that they wanted this for their child, and so we just we commend that child into the mercy of God. You told me uh, a story. I- that when Pope John Paul II would baptize infants late in his papacy, he had, you know, he he shook so much. Right. And so wouldn't priests pull, I thought I heard the story there that priests a, would pull kids out after the baptism and actually do another baptism because the first a, baptism he missed the water or something. There was a story about that at one point that after it was done that I think his MC had gone back and conditionally baptized a couple of the children just for fear that the water actually hit their head. So, yeah, I mean, that's the matter in form. I mean, the matter is water and the form is the pouring, either the um, the dunking or the pouring over the head, but three times and the water has to come in contact. Sorry, I'm not to, so you mentioned, mentioned dunking. Why do I feel like, what's the difference between, uh, why do, especially I see non-denominational churches, right. they go full submersion I feel like I I've never seen that. Well, that's how we started it. Um, You have you seen it? Okay. We have three ways of doing it. You have immersion, which is to dunk people. You have infusion, which would be to you're basically kneeling in a pool of water, and 
a copious amount of water is being poured over you, like a pitcher of water each time. Okay, that's that's infusion. <laughs> no, that was a thing. You're still <laughs> soaked, but you're not dunked. And then there's pouring, which is what we see with infants and that, and with adults too at times. So we started by doing immersion, but what happened? The church grew. She expanded. She expanded into colder environments. Well, in mm. Germany and the northern parts of Europe, you can't necessarily. I mean, you could dunk them, but you may kill them and at the same time. So, I mean, they're, <laughs> at least they go straight they're to good to go, <laughs> but I mean, you don't want hypothermia coming. So that's kind of where the notion of pouring wow. came from. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. There's another thing. Really good, fascinating list. Actually, a heck of a lot more than 12 things there. Father House, really appreciate your historical expertise on all that. Really good stuff. Um, hey, if you have some uh, some other things that you think we missed, uh, shoot us an email or shoot us a line. Um uh, you can just go to our website and uh, leave us a note there. If you'd like more podcasts, head on over to dio.org slash podcast. And until next time, we'll see you right here on Dive Deep.